0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Happy Sabbath. Welcome back. Rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. I am so happy to be back with you this Sabbath. I am also full of gratitude, not only to my co-host, but to the litany of friends and co-workers and colleagues in ministry that have filled out so appropriately. Actually, I was kind of nervous, friends, to come back because my colleagues have done more than an adequate job. But here we are, we're continuing to talk about this lesson that has to do with death and dying and how do we relate to these things. Today we're going to talk about the soul, Um, but before we do that, we're going to have a word of prayer. So can I invite you to join me in prayer? God, thank you for breathing into us, and thank you because that breath instills us with life. And thank you for Jesus, uh, Jesus who breathes hope into our lives. And as we think about the day where we once again will be filled by your Spirit and through your Spirit and called to live evermore, we pray that you stay with us as we wait, that you inhabit this conversation, that you breathe into it now so that we may speak according to your Spirit. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jewy, how are you this weekend? This how are you this wonderful, wonderful October Sabbath as the weather finally has started to shift.
1: Yes, it's. I know elsewhere in the country it's probably already changed, but here we're finally getting a little bit of fall weather, so it's nice. And welcome back. It's good from to be your back. your amazing trip, it's good to be you back. were you helped lead the tour through Asia Minor. Um, so how was it? Tell us a little bit about it.
0: It was. Enlightening, it was amazing, it was so neat, and I'm sure you had the same experience when you went to the Holy Land, just to connect in a more personal way to not only some members here, but so many of you members, I'm talking to you, crew in Sunnyvale Church, who look at us and who view us from all over the country. We mm-hmm. had people from Northern California, with people from the Midwest, people from the East Coast uh, that watch us. As a matter of fact, Joey, the funniest thing happened uh, to me while we were on the tour. As you know, Linda and the boys and I uh, took uh, two weeks off after that to kind of uh, travel through Europe. And we were sitting in a hotel in Twicken- Twickenham, which is a suburb outside of London, mm. and we were having breakfast, and this wonderful, wonderful lady, uh, whose name was Loma Linda, walks up to me, and I looked at her name tag, and I said, oh, your name is the name of a city. And she says, yes, uh, my parents always wanted to go to this place, and that's why they named me Loma Linda. And I said, well, I actually live there. And she said, oh, well, you, you are so, so... Uh, just so incredibly fortunate to live there and then she looks at me and you know how you see this glint of recognition in people's Mm. eyes Mm. and she was like oh my goodness it's you and I said who and she said you're the pastor from from the church we watch you every sabbath and It just reminds us what a sacred duty this is, how blessed we are to steward your time and to steward these resources that we have that allow us to speak to a broader audience. So that's just a really long and convoluted way of answering a question that could have been answered by me simply (laughs) saying, it was great,
1: but we're glad to be back. Wow. Well, welcome back. Her name was Loma Linda. Her name was Loma Linda. And so Loma Linda
0: in London. I know you're watching. God bless you. And here we are. I I promised that we were going to say hi, by the way, on my first opportunity. So hello, Loma Linda from Loma Linda.
1: (laughs) Hello, Loma Linda. Wow. That's incredible. We have to figure out some way to get her over here. I mean, with a name like Loma Linda, she's got to visit Loma Linda. She has to.
0: She has to. Actually, she said that a lot of her friends uh, work here and... uh, are part of our nursing uh, school and our nursing program. So if you as a nurse know somebody that's named Loma Linda, we met your friend in London. Wow! Um, I'd love to have her here
1: as long as you spring for the air. <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure something out. <laughs> well, welcome back. And, and now we're in the middle of this discussion on uh, death and dying and uh, the, living, the resurrected, mm-hmm. the living hope. Um, yeah,
0: Joey, and we talk about this this idea because there's often, right, this this common story that goes along within Christendom. Yeah, I one of the most popular romantic movies when I was growing up was Ghost, mm. a movie from the late, great uh, Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore, and Patrick's uh, character is murdered, and he returns to life as a ghost, and I think the premise of the movie is that not even death, can come into the uh, into the way of true love, which I think is is a beautiful message. Uh, but the theology of it kind of well, it kind of points out, doesn't it? This narrative that goes on not only in Christian circles but outside of Christian circles, uh, this desire that there that there needs to be something after uh, mm-hmm. death, uh, but the inability to explain what that is, and so we we end up believing. Uh, that we go somewhere, that our soul goes somewhere and then is uh, either uh, castigated with the fact that it has to meander down and along this world or it goes to heaven or uh, to that other place. And so uh, well, today we're, I'm excited because we get to see what the Bible has to say about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely when it comes to what happens after the death, there is either fascination or fear, mm-hmm. right? Um, obsession with uh, what possibilities are available after or fear about that there is Mm -hmm. nothing um, available after. And the biblical view seems to tread in between those Mm -hmm. two messages. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's going to be exciting to look into that.
0: Yeah, so I think the first thing we need to do is we need to localize ourselves and we need to define how any idea, um, as most ideas do, grows and develops. So if you were to talk to somebody within uh, the Orthodox Jewish community, Mm. they have a view that is very closely linked, and the lesson just briefly touches on it, but I found it so fascinating. It's briefly linked to the first way in which uh, our Jewish brethren understood uh, death and dying, and that is that nothing happens. Mm. Um, In essence, the first real clear, and I know that you're going to, that there's going to be comments. uh, So I need to hedge. I'm saying the first clear indication of an afterlife doesn't come until the intertestamental period. Now, there's hints definitely throughout the Old Testament. But the clear, clear, clear indication of an afterlife comes in the book of Maccabees which, as you know, is an apocryphal, intertestamental book right before Jesus' time. Before that, the idea was that you did the best and you lived your life in accordance with Yahweh's designs for you mm-hmm. as you were on this, war, on this earth, and then when you died, you went to rest with your forefathers. Mm-hmm. And the lesson talks a little bit about that, at least in the case of Abraham and David, as, as you might remember, um, and then you're remembered and you live on through the memory and through the legacy that you live, uh, that you leave behind through your family. So that's the initial uh, understanding that people had about death and dying. And then as most things uh, happen with a God that never pushes us beyond what we can handle, um, that belief evolves until uh, we have what we have now and what we believe uh, the biblical record points to, and then some other things uh, that are not as clearly connected with the Bible, but definitely
1: are, uh, I think, ideas that we would recognize now. Yeah. So then why, where, where do you think, because the majority of Christendom um, believes that, uh, there is immediate you enter death is just a gateway into a new mm-hmm. life immediately you step from this life mm-hmm. into another life right whether that life happens in hell or happens in heaven your um your eternal soul goes somewhere mm-hmm. is is the concept so where where do you think though that that mm-hmm. belief mm-hmm. evolved from
0: well that's a great question Joey and the the temptation is to say paganism mm-hmm. but that's an oversimplification And so uh, the real place that that idea is birthed is uh, there is a merger, even during uh, Paul's time, and and the uh, the epistle to the Hebrews, as we studied a few uh, lessons ago, is a perfect example of this. There's a merger between Greek philosophy and Christian experience. Mm. And uh, these two ideologies that were up to that point separate began to merge together. That ultimately um, reaches its zenith with the writings of Thomas Aquinas who writes a wonderfully dense book called the Summa. Mm -hmm. And in the Summa, Aquinas not only outlines what happens to the soul, But Aquinas also tries to provide some clarity Mm -hmm. to what happens when we die. And so following uh, the legacy of a lot of early uh, church fathers, he creates levels, for example, um, and speaks about levels and hierarchies in heaven and in hell. And so you get this idea that stems from really uh, Neoplatonic thought that says that that which you cannot see, that you have... Kind of this dualism Mm -hmm. to the world, right? The material and the spiritual. Mm -hmm. And that the spiritual, because you cannot see it, is therefore incorruptible. Now that does create a problem, Joey. If you believe that the soul is eternal, in other words, if you believe that human beings possess inherent immortality, Mm -hmm. then you have to decide where the soul goes. Mm And I think we haven't asked a question of uh, broader Christendom as to what the idea of inherent immortality does vis-à-vis the character of God. Mm. So let's uh, let's do a little exercise here, you and let's do an impromptu exercise. Mm. Um, Julie, which is the, give me the name of somebody that you're sh- that I mean, if anyone doesn't deserve to go to heaven, uh, just give me the name of somebody that that doesn't. Adolf Hitler. <laughs> 99.9% of the time, right? People say Hitler. Yeah. Uh, I, I asked this question to uh, some, some graduate students a few years ago and somebody said my spouse. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. <it's> problematic. <laughs> um, yeah. They, they needed to see Pastor Jamie afterwards, <laughs> But yeah, so Hitler. Mm-hmm. Now. Hitler uh, had a very limited scope of life. Really, Hitler comes into power around 1936 and does some uh, really atrocious things for about a decade. Mm. Uh, Other than that, Hitler had some dreams and some aspirations, I'm sure. So if Hitler doesn't go to heaven and Hitler has inherent immortality, then Hitler goes to hell. Mm. The problem with believing in inherent immortality is now Hitler is going to be punished Mm for eternity for some atrocities he committed during a finite amount of time. Mm -hmm. And even our ideas and our concepts of justice, right, are built on the notion that the punishment needs to fit the crime. Mm -hmm. And so if you believe Hitler deserves to be tortured forever Mm -hmm. for something, atrocious as it was that he did during a limited amount of time, then it's not just questions about what the Bible says pertaining, and we're going to talk about that pertaining to death. It's also questions about the kind of God that would
1: set the system up. And and God doesn't seem to be that kind of God because we see even in Deuteronomic law that... Um, he actually limits the scope of punishment, mm-hmm. right? When he said an eye for an eye, a mm-hmm. tooth for a tooth, he is saying, um, you've been t- you, you, someone takes your eye, you've been taking their whole mm-hmm. life. Don't do that. He's trying to restrict mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. say, at least take what is taken from mm-hmm. you. And, and then the, uh, the ethic that Jesus seems to advocate is actually to turn the other cheek mm-hmm. and to not even take that opportunity to punish the other person and, and make sure that they pay back and get the same amount of retribution from them that, that they the pain that they caused mm-hmm. you. And yet, if God does this in the ultimate calculus of things, then God isn't even observing his own his law. His own law. That's a really good point. Yeah. And so the
0: church... And by this, we mean the broader Christian church, because let's face it, up until very recently, that was the dominating idea within Christendom, right? Mm -hmm. That the soul is eternal and it goes somewhere after you die. But the problem is, even that notion created problems for the broader Christian church. For example, if the church believes that there is no salvation outside of the church, then what happens or where do the souls of babies go to once they die and so we ask and we kind of mock and scoff at our brethren our Christian bre- brothers and sisters who practice infant baptism but you need to understand the rationale behind that mm-hmm. if i believe that there is no salvation that there is no salvation outside of the church and outside of accepting jesus and I believe that my soul is immortal, then I need to ensure that my, my child's soul goes to heaven. Mm-hmm. And so they start practicing infant baptism. They also create this other doctrine because something about that idea of inequality in retribution that you, that you were mentioning uh, so well with the Deuteronomistic Law uh, struck people the wrong way. And mm-hmm. so they said, well, we're not going to analyze the problem of the eternity of the soul, what we're gonna do is we're gonna create an escape hatch for the soul. And so you have uh, the the doctrine of, of, well, you can go to heaven. If you go to hell, there's ways of getting out of that. And so you had the emergence, for example, of the doctrine of purgatory. So all of these things that we look at now and we look at other faiths and say, oh my, there is no biblical basis for that are actually attempts at resolving a problem mm. that was created because of this merging
1: between Greek philosophy and the Hebrew mindset. Wow, wow. And just going back to the ethical uh, question again, even even though Adolf Hitler did atrocious things, the one thing that he never did was choose to be born. Mm-hmm. Right? He was never chosen, he never chose to be born to his parents Never chose to grow up and grow up in that family. He didn't choose to be born. And so can God realistically punish someone forever mm-hmm. for something they that ultimately choose. they never chose, right? So ethically that also creates a, a problem right. as well. Right. So could it be possible then that our doctrine of hell? And
0: by ours, I don't mean the Adventist doctrine. I mean the broader Christian doctrine. Could it be possible that that doctrine is actually inserted there for us to seek a sense of retribution mm. at the end of time without asking the question, what is this do to the
1: way people perceive God? Mm. So really, hell, our concept of hell springs from our own desires mm-hmm. for retribution mm-hmm. and punishment, and making sure that we get our pound of flesh from the people who have caused us pain. That's exactly right. You said it better than I could. Um,
0: So what does that do then um, as we start trying to unravel what the scripture really says about death? Um, Well, I think the first thing that we need to dispel is there's another myth that is alive and well within within even the Adventist church, that says that death is a result of sin. Mm. And while that definitely seems to be the case, we need to remember something. Mm. Human beings were not created with inherent immortality. That is to say, immortality is not something that we possessed even before the fall. Mm. That's the whole purpose, right, of having the tree of life, a symbol there of our dependence on the only being who is not dependent on anyone else, the only being who possesses inherent immortality, which is God. So even in their unfallen state, and I think this needs to be said, Adam and Eve didn't possess inherent immortality. They were dependent on God. And so death isn't kind of this arbitrary punishment that God in, introduces into life because mm-hmm. of our mistakes. Death is our result, is a result of our separation from God. Mm-hmm. Death is a result of us moving away from the only source of life. Mm-hmm. And so the choice then isn't that death is a punishment uh, that God Has given us because of our sin, the choice is sin is a separation, sin is the ultimate state of separation from God, and without the author and giver and sustainer of life, uh, there cannot be life.
1: Mm. Yeah, so Adam and Eve did not have um, uh, immortality in and of themselves, Mm -hmm. they had conditional immortality, Mm -hmm. which came from their connection Mm -hmm. with God, just like. A light bulb mm. is plugged into an electrical so- socket. When a lamp is plugged into an electrical socket, it, it can give light. As soon as you pull the plug out of the electrical socket, it no longer has mm-hmm. light. It fades. The light fades because it's no longer connected to the light source. And so um, you're saying that that's, exa- that's what happened to Adam and Eve mm-hmm. is they, they chose to unplug themselves mm-hmm. from God. And thus the natural result was the dying of light. Right. And so... This idea, and by the way, this is, when people talk about
0: traditional Adventism, this is about as traditional as we can get. Adventism has always held up this banner, which is very, very rare within Christian families, of conditional immortality. Now, there is then the idea of separation, right, Uh, or of dependence, and so ultimately, The problem that Jesus comes to solve isn't just the problem of death. Mm. The real problem that Jesus comes to solve is the problem of alienation Mm. and the problem of separation. And so that is why, and I think, Joey, this, uh, and I know we're talking about a lot of ideas, but they're all connected in some way a lot of our unhealthy theories of atonement stem from a misunderstanding of the problem that Jesus came to solve. Mm. So if you believe that the whole problem is death, then you understand why a lot of our brothers and sisters um, have come up with a framework that says, God needed somebody to pay, so somebody needed to die. Mm. But when you see the problem uh, that Jesus came to solve, not as simply death, although that's that's part and parcel of this bigger problem, which is alienation and separation, then the incarnation makes sense. Mm. Because the true purpose of Jesus, of Jesus coming, isn't that God needed somebody to pay. If that's your view, then um, the resurrection morning becomes simply a nice, neat little post log instead of the crux of our faith. Uh, the real problem that God comes, that Jesus comes to solve is the problem of alienation and separation. And mm-hmm. that is why it's so meaningful when we say
1: Jesus is ultimately Emmanuel, God with us. Yeah, that is that is so powerful. That is so important. Um, so if any of you missed that, what Pastor Miguel just said is so, so important for us to remember that the fact that Jesus came not just to fix a technical problem of bringing life to people who were dead, but bringing connection to people who were separated from him is, is ultimately... And you see that even, it, even as early as the sacrificial system mm-hmm. in, in Leviticus, um, in Exodus, these these sacrifices, the majority of them were very relational, mm-hmm. right? They were not just about a payment for a debt. Mm-hmm. There are some. There are There, there is <laughs> one, like the guilt... The, the guilt sacrifice is uh, involves payment for, for a debt. But really, the majority of the sacrifices, like the burnt offering mm-hmm. that was done every day, that was about, it was a food offering which has the symbol of relationship mm-hmm. and a relational connection being built. And it's beautiful, Roy, Roy Gane um, writes about this um, in his book about how that, that imagery was all about reconnecting us into a relationship with God again. Mm-hmm. And so if those sacrifices were all pointing to Jesus, then Jesus' death on the cross was not just a payment Mm -hmm. for a debt, but about restoring a relationship with us, which is why he lived three and a half years. He didn't just come here immediately and die. That's exactly the point. That
0: that is the only way that you can explain Jesus' earthly ministry. Even more than that, that says so much about God because even if Adam and Eve didn't sin, even if they lived lives of completely trusting and obeying God, there still was this disconnect, Mm. right? And so the whole language, that anthropomorphic, that human language that is used in the first two chapters before the fall, especially in Genesis chapter 2, to try to talk about God, how God gets his hands dirty and is walking and breathes into the nostrils. All of that is also uh, with the intent of creating these relationships, right? Because the real problem that that God wants to fix is the problem of separation. So um, God, God is, is so amazing in the sense that God isn't just intellectual. Mm. Ultimately, God is experiential. And the only way that God can truly uh, fix that gap that has been opened uh, between us and him is by experiencing and feeling and relating to us. And so that's ultimately uh, the gift that we have Mm-hmm. Uh, as Christian conf- uh, and as part of our Christian confession that Jesus became flesh, mm-hmm. that he was born of a virgin. That he lived that he was crucified, as the Apostles Creed says. B- uh, by Pontius Pilate, that he resurrected and that now he sits at the right hand of
1: God, ready to to judge the quick and the dead. Wow, wow. That is such. <laughs> There is such beauty there, right? That Jesus did, he became flesh for us because we separated from him, right? He did whatever he could to bridge that gap between us and him. Because if you think about Adam and Eve, what you were saying about them was that, um, from the beginning, the challenge was continuing that connection with God, right? That even when Adam and Eve were created, even though they were created perfect, Mm -hmm. that did not mean that they were created that they did not have um, a ways to grow, Mm -hmm. right? And I believe even after we go to heaven, we'll continue to grow Mm -hmm. because you see that from the very beginning. Growth is expected in Adam and Eve. And they needed to grow in their relationship with him. That growth took an off for him when they chose to break that trusting relationship and and trust the word of a serpent and trust their own instincts more than God. And we talked about that last week. But um, ultimately, there was from the very beginning, a need for that growth. And then so when Adam and Eve separated themselves from that, from God, he again made another path so that we can on-ramp into growth with him again.
0: That's beautifully said. And I think, Joey, that the reality then is that God is the path maker, the way maker, Mm -hmm. right? He's always creating situations and circumstances for us to connect in meaningful ways. So think about what Genesis 1.26 says, and this will give us, I think, kind of a concept as to what we were created to do. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image and in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Several scholars, several Genesis scholars... uh, Martin Note comes to mind, for example, note that what is happening here is that human beings are, when living in uh, accordance with God's design, human beings serve as a link between creator and creation. Mm. God speaks and says, let us create them in our image, and he creates us to do what God does, to Mm -hmm. rule over, to have dominion, But then, God also creates us that we may be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. And so there's two main tasks. Like God, Mm -hmm. we are called to rule over uh, creation. But like the created order, we are also commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. And so we serve kind of as as this link, as this ultimate link between between creature and creation. Mm -hmm. What sin does is it it breaks down the very fabric of that link. Mm -hmm. And so what starts happening is we give in to uh, our impulses to be fruitful and multiply. So we we give in to, as Aquinas would say, because Aquinas didn't just write bad stuff, he actually had some really profound and salient points. He says that we start acting in the way that the creatures act Mm. rather than the way the Creator acts. Mm. And so, instead of having this harmonious relationship with creation, we start abusing and destroying creation. And that stems from our inability to recognize that we are not God. We are simply the link between creature and creation. Mm. And I think the ultimate, the ultimate expression of this is to say that we possess that which God only possesses, which is immortality.
1: Oh, wow. Wow. There's so much good to unpack there. First of all, that we were created not just to be one of creation, but also to be a link between creator and creation, right? That we aren't Just consumers of creation, we are also supposed to be creators Mm -hmm. of creation. That God Mm, partners, God encourages us to continue the creative work that he began, right? To nurture creation and to make it continue. And when we sin, we break down that role Mm. and we just either become completely consumers or that that comes from thinking that we are actually God and we get to choose that role Mm. and to change that role that we have instead of... Um, accepting the role that God has given to us. That's so powerful. And, and yet God continues to try to, to re- repair that role and put us back into mm-hmm. that role. I, I'm thinking, again, to um, the Israelites and how God's dream for them was to be a priesthood, mm-hmm. a nation of priests, mm-hmm. right? To be that, if a priest, priest is supposed to be that connection, right? That mediator, between God and others, right. right? There is the priest of, it, of all mm. b- believers, mm. that all who follow God are returning to that rule mm-hmm. that He envisioned for us from creation. Wow, that is, that is powerfully stated. So it's not that God
0: is trying to do something new, mm. it's that God is trying to restore us to that which He has always called us yeah. to, which is a harmonious relationship with Him and with each other and that eternal life is a byproduct of that rather than something we possess that's i think very not only is it articulately said but it's also linked with scripture so think about uh, all the texts that we have in the old testament right mm-hmm. obviously we have uh, our favorite one which is in ecclesiastes i mean and we adventists love to quote ecclesiastes 9 yeah. which said that the, which says now now the living know that they are to die, die that they are to die but the dead know nothing mm-hmm. We like Job, uh, when Job says that the dead person will not return to his or her home. Um, and so it seems that there is this clarity. Uh, Joey, I don't know about you, but I was a bit shocked that the that the lesson, and maybe it's because there's so much overwhelming textual evidence in the Old Testament, uh, but there's also a lot of stuff in the New Testament that talks about what happens when we die. Uh, John eleven comes to mind. First Thessalonians four come to mind. So there's there's this preponderance of evidence. Ultimately, there's even the way that Jesus understands death, mm-hmm. which is which is sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet somehow, some way, some way, somehow, some way, we have this narrative uh, that is that has been propagated that says no, 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 you go somewhere, yeah. and in that place you're going to get your just reward, which I think is, it's dangerous not just, not because it's bad theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that we try to be really, really open and affirming of, of people's beliefs, and not only their beliefs, but the right to believe uh, and to have a path. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people that I know you and I read and, and would consider brothers and sisters in Christ, mm-hmm. um, Martin Luther, for example. Yeah. Um, believed this thing, so it's not that that we want to be judgmental, but it does create some problems as we've been saying, uh, on the way and in the way you see mm-hmm. the
1: character of God. Yeah, and and you you made this point from the very beginning. It arose, this arose out of a desire to do something good mm-hmm. to try to fix some of the challenges that we had mm-hmm. and and. Um, to reconcile uh, uh, biblical theology with what the uh, um, Greek philosophy be- believed at that time. But in the merging of that and trying to reconcile the two, it created all sorts of problems, um, like you talked about, with the character of God. And so then then things like purgatory and hell, like you talked about, came, came into play. And unfortunately, it eventually led us to believe really to advocate almost for the lie that Satan was trying to promote to Adam and Eve from the very beginning, yes, which was that you can be like God. You can take his place and you can live forever Mm -hmm. regardless of whether you are with him or not. And for people that speak, particularly within
0: the Protestant family of, of believers, for people that speak and focus so much on grace, What an ever burning hell or an eternal heaven does Mm -hmm. is it really limits the scope of grace because Mm -hmm. it says, well, what really happens when you die is you get judged according to what you've done. And depending on kind of how many merits you you accumulate, um, you go to one place or the other, which poses some problems in our understanding of eschatology, and that's perhaps why uh, there isn't much on Christian eschatology coming from places that, that do not have the, the same view of death that we do in some other some other churches that have. But it also, I think creates kind of this and this gospel that is set up aside, aside with the gospel that says yes, 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 you are saved by Jesus. But make sure that you do just enough because there's, there's a tally, there's a divine tally mm-hmm. there. And you don't want to go to hell, do you? So make sure that you're balancing
1: that tally in ways that are appropriate. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is something in us. Um, sometimes we accuse when we read through, for example, the book of Romans or Galatians, we kind of scoff the Judaizers for their legalism and mm-hmm. how they had a legalistic, Perspective, but legalism is not really a problem of the Jews. It's a problem of, of humanity. humanity, right? All humans tend towards legalism. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at every religion, there is a tendency towards. Let's look at what we need to mm-hmm. do, right? And even within Christianity, there is that bent, right? Even within Adventism, we have to be honest. There is that bent towards legalism, and uh, it, it it seems to arise from the fact that we struggle. We struggle with saying that, that our future depends not on what we do, but on the grace of God, mm. that we are completely at the mercy of God's grace. Mm-hmm. And that means that even that I am just as unworthy as Adolf Hitler. Mm. And that's a, that's a difficult thing to say, right? We want strata. Strata. We want to say, well, I'm worthy, unworthy, but not quite as unworthy. Not as, as- bad. <laughs> Last, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler. Yes.
0: And scripture says, well, you actually are. <laughs> um, and so this does two things. It, it removes, a, 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 when, when understood properly, it removes all the pressure. Mm. Because then I recognize that my entrance into heaven is not contingent on me. Mm. And so whoever God wants to let in God will let in and I, I don't know what that looks like, but I bet it's going to be surprising uh, when we get there. And so I think if you have if you adopt that viewpoint then it then it does provide a lens that makes the story in revelation not only palatable, but it makes sense. So if you remember, mm-hmm. God has uh, this this whole book, and throughout the book, the real theme of it is, let me reveal who I truly am, right? Mm-hmm. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the book, Jesus comes down. And when when we see him appear, those who are saved, uh, join him in the clouds. Those who are lost, perish. And uh, the devil is then chained and imprisoned on earth for a millennial. And this is why the Adventist view of this is is so brilliant Mm -hmm. because we believe in the premillennial return of of Jesus. Mm -hmm. What needs to happen then is we ask the question of, okay, well, what is happening during those thousand years? Mm -hmm. And if you continue reading the story, Revelation says that the books were open and on the throne sat not God, Mm -hmm. but you and me. Those of us who who, who had been martyred and hurt yeah. by other people, we're the ones that actually need to make those decisions. And so, ultimately, I think what is going to happen, and it's just maybe Pollyannish of me, but maybe during those thousand years, what those who, of us who have been called to reign with the Lamb are, are doing, is we're learning how to judge with the Lamb, like, and like the Lamb. Mm. And that means that we are, that Christ is trying to exhaust all possibilities for those people that seem to reject them. Because as we've said, right, he knows what rejection means. What rejection means is, as you, I think, so brilliantly discussed in your analogy, it, what rejection ultimately means is you're pulling the plug. Uh, the lamp is pulling the plug, and it doesn't matter how much The outlet wants to pass that life-giving, light-giving power. It can't because the lamp is unplugged. Mm. So Jesus wants to exhaust every single possibility. And at that point, you have to balance something. You have to balance God's relentless desire to exhaust every possibility that we may connect ourselves to the lamp with also the necessity that true love and true freedom must imply the capacity to say no. Mm. I don't know how it all works out, but I am so glad that our view of the character of God is a God that says, I don't wanna send you into a, an existence that is disconnected from me because there is no existence a part of me. And you have a place in my heart. So I'm gonna exhaust all possibilities oh. for us to be connected. Wow. I find that incredibly, incredibly comforting. Right. I also find it incredibly moving that that amount of love mm-hmm. allows for the possibility to say, no, I don't, I don't want that.
1: Wow. I love how you, put, how you just described the millennium because often I thought of the millennium as being a time where we're just vindicating that God was mm-hmm. right. And yet, as you describe it, what reason does God have to put us up there to judge if not to make sure that he hasn't made any mistakes, mm-hmm. to make sure that every possible avenue and outcome um, towards redeeming people, that there is no stone unturned. Right. Can I just pause for a second? How incredible, incredibly Um, humble that makes God I mean Mm. here is God who is the creator of the universe who knows more than any of us will ever know in every any stretch of eternity Mm. and yet he is still willing to put these just redeemed flawed humans on the throne to make sure that every single Mm. decision that he's made is is just and is has, has gone to every possible lengths that he can mm-hmm. to say, you know, we we live in a medical community and we talk about how the patient's directive is ultimate in a, in a medical uh, community. So even if a doctor wants to do a life-giving procedure for the patient, if the patient says no, there's nothing that the doctor mm-hmm. can do. That choice has to be respected. But I liken God to a doctor who is trying to find any possible avenue to convince this person, please mm. make the right choice. Mm-hmm. This, this life-giving procedure is available mm. to you. And he's willing to call the call in family members and, and to do anything that he can, find out about the background, whatever he can to make that appeal to the person, mm. even to the point of putting um, formerly fallen human beings on the throne to help him with that process. How powerful. That is a,
0: such a beautiful picture of God, Joey. I, and I think we need more of that in our Christian discourse because mm-hmm. it's not a picture that we often hear mm-hmm. and that we often paint. So let's let's go back to Hitler for a moment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't know if Hitler's going to be in heaven or not.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but I do know how Jesus approaches those who are hurting and harming him and on the cross i mean you you do have him passing judgment on those who who have harmed him and he simply says father forgive them for they know what not what they do mm. now i want you to think what happens to a people because ultimately god's ultimate goal isn't heaven or hell it's restoration i think we've we've spent the bulk of our time trying to to unpack that issue um, we've also spent some time saying, well, we don't possess inherent immortality. That's something that is a gift from God. We'll follow the analogy of Hitler for a moment and imagine. Imagine that those six million Jews that he has put to death have spent a millennium learning how to judge. Like Jesus judges. Mm. And now imagine Hitler after the millennium comes face to face with them. And now imagine that instead. Of looking, as you said, to exact their pound of flesh. Mm. They see Hitler in their in their eyes, in his eyes, they turn to Jesus and they say, Father, forgive him, for he knew not what they do. That to me is the ultimate vindication, both for 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 anyone before they make their decision that love ultimately wins. Um. That it's not strength or violence or power that lives. That wins, but that it's love.
1: Wow. That is a, a challenging and overwhelming picture of the love of God. And what's incredible is we actually don't have to wait to the millennium mm. to demonstrate that kind of love, right? I mean, that's what it means to be a priest of God, right? Is to be that mediator, to be someone who advocates just as Jesus advocates for us that we advocate for mm. others. Even those who have hurt us, even those who have done things that we deem as being unforgivable, God calls us to advocate for them because we also have someone who's advocating mm. for us. Wow. And that, that ultimately is why the
0: Jews, like right, the early, early Jews, believed that what you left behind was your, that this is all the time you had. Mm. And what you left behind was the legacy that you may rest well with your forefathers. Mm. This was it. And so if you would have asked an Abraham mm. or an Isaac or a Jacob, if there was no afterlife, would you still choose the same God? Will mm. you Would you still choose to live in the same way? They would have answered with an unequivocal yes. And so I love the fact that you are grounding us away from the realm of ideas and conjectures, away from asking the questions, what happens with when we die? Because scripture gives us an idea, but the truth is, we don't know. We, we haven't been there. Um, and then you, you ground us in the, in the realm of the material, in the realm of today. And so today the question is, if there was no heaven, if there was no hell, if this is all you had, Would you still follow the same God? Mm. Would you still mediate in the same way? Would you still call people to follow Christ in the same way? And I hope that our answer is yes. Mm. I hope that our answer is we would not only uh, follow God, but we would take up that mantle of mediation
1: that scripture invites us to. Wow, because that ultimately was what we were created to do, Mm -hmm. right? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the bird of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. He says, you were created to promote creation. Mm. So do that even if if there's nothing else. We know that there is, but even if there's nothing else. Fulfill the calling that God gave us. Well, I think that's
0: a beautiful way to finish, Joey. Can you pray for us?
1: Our good and gracious God, we're in awe today of how humble you are, how willing you are to share this incredible work of creation, this incredible work of redemption with us flawed human beings. Because you don't want any, any opportunity to go missed. You want every single person to be actively involved in making sure that everyone is connected, reconnected to you. That the separation that we experienced at sin is, is, is bridged. And that gap that you came here to die and to live and to die and were resurrected to, to bridge is used to to reconnect all of humanity with you again. So Lord, help us to have your humility, to have your motive, and to have your love so that we can bridge that gap is our prayer in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. And so, dear friends, may our relentless creator continue being a presence in your life until we meet again. Have a wonderful, wonderful week, and God bless you. Thank you.